Welcome to the Calvary Chapel Lake of the Ozarks message podcast. Our prayer and desire as you listen to today's message is that it would be an encouragement and challenge in your walk and relationship with Jesus. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at cclo.org or download our app in your app store today. Now, let's jump into today's message together. Amen. Good morning. How are you guys? Good. Continuing our study in the book of Revelation. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Revelation chapter 10. And we're, we're hitting kind of a section of the story here where these are called parenthetical chapters, right? So all the way from 10 to 14, parenthetical chapters, meaning John is writing and he's kind of sending us in the story and we're understanding chronologically the events that are gonna take place during this seven year period that we call tribulation. And now we're at the halfway mark, we're at that three and a half years, and there's a lot of events that happen. And what John can't do is write about all of them at the same time, right? It's like a good movie where you're seeing one part of the storyline and it's gonna pause and it's gonna say, now let's go back and see the other side of the story. And that's good for us because if we only look at the wrath of God, the hellfire brimstone that's being poured out on earth, and that's the only details that we have, it could really lead us astray in our understanding of who God is. And so John at this moment, because there's so many other things that are going on, they're called parenthetical chapters, so he's just going to fill us in on all the events and the details that are happening simultaneously as we're walking through these three waves of God's wrath. And so we're not moving the story forward chronologically, but we're seeing uh, details being filled in for us. And that's a good thing for us. That's a protection for us because, again, we could just see all of his wrath and we would stop there. But now we get to see other parts of the story. We get to see that even as God is pouring out his wrath, salvation is still possible. And so the book of Revelation really is a book of salvation. It is a book of hope and a book of encouragement for us as the church. And so um, here in Revelation 10, I'm in 1 John, let's keep going. We're almost there, we're almost there, we're turning. There it is, seven, eight, nine, ten. And then I saw, <clears throat> starting verse one, then I saw another angel, another mighty angel, coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. And he had a scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. And he called out with a loud voice, like a lion, Let's try this again. Called out with a loud voice, like a lion, roaring. And when he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay. But in the days, but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled, just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, go, 
take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and I told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, take and eat it. It will be, it will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. And so we have this uh, kind of information that's filling us in that is, is what is going on at this moment. And so let's, let's talk about that. So the kind of the timeline of eschatology here, it, the seven-year tribulation starts with the rapture of the church, and then the Antichrist will be revealed, this person on earth, so fully human, and then we're gonna go through three and a half years. And what we've read and already studied is this, this uh, we're gonna see the seven seals, during the first three and a half years, and we're gonna see the trumpets. And that's gonna be in the first three and a half years of tribulation. And we're gonna see that the Antichrist, when he's revealed, will sign a covenant and be protecting the Jews. He will allow them to rebuild the temple. He will allow them to continue in their sacrificial worship like that they were even in the Old Testament time. And we get all of that from Daniel chapter nine. It reveals that to us. But then at this midpoint, this seventh trumpet, once this trumpet is blown, that opens up the seven bowls. So if you remember us talking about that, seven seals, the seventh seal, like those Russian nesting dolls, you go through the seven seals, the seventh seal is the seven trumpets. And the seven trumpets, once we get to the seventh one, is the seven bowls of God's wrath. So we're seeing kind of three waves of God's wrath, and they're all kind of nesting within each other. And so we are at this kind of pinnacle moments of the seven year period of tribulation at the seventh trumpet. And, and some of the things that we have seen and how we see the intensity of God's wrath go up is in the seals, a fourth of the earth, a fourth of the water, a fourth of the vegetation, a fourth of mankind will be affected and killed because of the seals. And then we get to the trumpets and then you see the intensity go up and it's a third a third of the water, a third of the earth, a third of mankind. And then at this three and a half year mark, what we'll kind of talk about here in the next few chapters, because again, it's all parenthetical, so it's all happening at the same time. It's not this, 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 it's all at the same time. What we see is that the Antichrist will break that covenant with the Jews, so he goes from protecting them, now he's going to attack them. And there's reasons for that, and we'll fill you in. You don't want to miss the next few weeks. And so we're right here at that pinnacle moment, seventh trumpet, it's about to blow, and before then, now the wrath of God, because again, it was a fourth in the seals, then it was a third in the trumpets. What we see in the bowls, what we see in the second half of tribulation, all of humanity will be affected because of it. We see the fullness in that. And so before the seventh trumpet is blown, we see this angel come down and he has this little scroll in his hand. And a lot of times we see you know, Bible interpreters, you, you, if, you, if you rush too quickly into it, you're gonna see these descriptions of, of spiritual beings and the quick answer, just like a good Sunday school class, it's always Jesus, right? remember my Sunday school teacher telling me like, hey, what is that called, the animal that has a fluffy tail, hides in trees, likes acorns, and it's like, 
I want to say squirrel, but I'm in Sunday school class and I know the answer is Jesus, right? Like that's what we want to do all the time. We see the, a little bit of a description there and it's like, but I'm in Sunday school, so I want to say Jesus. And so we see this description of this angel and we want to go right to and say, that's Jesus. Now, yes, this being is very magnificent. We got some legs of fire. We're coming down from heaven. We got a little rainbow here, a little bit of a cloud. Got uh, legs of pillars of fire, face looking like the sun. But this is not Jesus. This is an angel. And one of the things that we know from that is it says that another mighty angel. And again, the Bible's written in English like ours right here, duh. Uh, but it, that's not the original language. It was written in Greek in the New Testament, Hebrew for the Old. So sometimes we have to go back to those original languages and say, okay, where, where is this off and can we have some understanding? And so when we look at the Greek word for another, meaning another of the same kind, you would never say that about Jesus. Oh yeah, there's a bunch of Christ up there. We got, we got five or six of them. Take your pick, whoever you like. You know, it's kind of like when you're playing Super Mario and you get the Yoshi, you know, the little dinosaur. You can get the blue one, you get the red one, you get the green one, and they're all about the same, just another. We would never say that about Jesus. He, no one is like him. And so there would never be, you know, a heretical statement like that from John to say, oh yeah, it's another of the same kind that there's, and, and call that person this being Jesus. And so this is just an angel. Most likely, uh, a lot of people are looking that this is Michael, the archangel, or some other high-ranking angel, and uh, they kind of correlate Daniel chapter 12 to try to bring us a little more understanding. Um, just as a quick side note, when you study Revelation, you really need to study Daniel. Uh, Matthew 24, 25 is key, uh, and First and Second Thessalonians, right? And, but any good Bible doctrine you need to study more than one book. So they even just take the divinity of Jesus. Is Jesus really God? Like you could study the Gospel of John and get a great understanding, but you would miss certain aspects of his divinity if you don't go to another book. Now, yes, we're Calvary Chapel and we just walk through book by book, but it's also good to have some filler info so that we get the full story of what's happening. Because sometimes we'll be like, well, that's not in Revelation. Like, you're right, it's not but we find some of those details or events in other books and we need to take it holistically because that was the reason it was written. And so, sorry, little side note there. And so we have this archangel, most likely Michael, coming down and he has this little scroll in his hand. And again, another thing, another uh, approach to understanding Revelation, because we've kind of walked through how people interpret it differently, and we try to navigate those waters to say, hey, this is how some people do, and this is their reasoning, and, and in the same way, this is where we hold to it, and this is our reasoning. Some would say that the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls are actually just describing the same events, but in different ways. And it's like, it's actually just one event. We're just, we're just getting different points of view to it. And there would be a lot of details that would be very hard to, uh, to give understanding to if that was the case. Because what happens is when somebody holds that view, they look at this and they say, oh, that little scroll, that's the same scroll that we see earlier that's on the seven seals. 
It's a different scroll. It, it's even a different word that's used here. And so this is like a little book or a little scroll that is being used. So this isn't the seven sealed scroll that we saw earlier in the book of Revelation. This is something different. And so we have this angel and he has this little book, this little scroll, and he comes down and he's standing on earth, he's standing on the land and the sea, just kind of showing the authority that has been permitted and given to him to bring uh, kind of the contents of this scroll. And again, the one earlier in Revelation with the seven seals, it was written on front and back and it was, it was great. And, and this is a small little book and it contains all the information regarding the seventh trumpet, which means the seven bowls of God's wrath. And so it's gonna show us the things that are about to take place in the last three and a half years of tribulation. And we're gonna pick the, the chronology of all of that picks back up in Revelation 15 and 16. So here in the next few weeks, and if you can kind of see, we're taking about a chapter a week, you know, so we got a few weeks of that. So until then, all of this is just parenthetical. This is all just filler details that are really good because we need the fullness of the understanding of what's going on. Just like us, you know, have you ever been in an argument or a conversation and you only get half the story? You know, if you have two kids, you, you never get the full story, right? You got one kid running up and that murderous sibling of mine, you know, and they, they give you the whole story where they, their sibling needs death and we need execution and punishment swiftly and we need vengeance and then you hear the other side of the story. And it's like, oh, I see the details that you left out, right? You're really trying to make yourself, and that, it can happen to even us that we need the full details because if we only take one side of the story, it could really skew our view of God, which is one of the most important things about us. The most important thing about us is what we think of God. And so we need to have the full understanding because so many people, when we even talk about, hey, we're walking through Revelation, we go straight to who's the Antichrist? What's the mark of the beast? We go through all the hellfire and brimstone and the wrath of God. And then when I say things like, oh, it's a book of salvation, you get weird looks. It's a book of hope and encouragement. Because again, what's the book about? Jesus. The very first verses, it's a revelation of Jesus, and even as, yes, God is pouring out his wrath at the same time, at least to the chronology that we're at with the seals and the trumpets, he is sparing far more than he's smiting. You know, a fourth is being affected in the seals, so that means three-fourths isn't. Then you get to the trumpets, a third is being affected, meaning two-thirds isn't being affected. And so we are seeing God in, in a way, orchestrate, restrict the fullness of his wrath because even in this seven-year tribulation period where his wrath is being poured out, it's actually gonna be the greatest revival in human history because we, you know, if you remember, we studied about the great multitude that's gonna come to faith during and in the tribulation. And so it's gonna be a great moment of salvation for those. Now, will they endure some really crazy stuff? Absolutely. Because again, at the same time that they have the space and the opportunity to come to faith, God is pouring out his wrath. And so this little book, this little scroll, it's containing all the information in regards to this. And then what we see something kind of weird, right? 
pretty much the whole book's a little bit weird, but something a little bit more weird. And it says that he called out with a loud voice like a, a, a lion roaring. And when he called out, the seven thunders sounded. Very kind of poetic way to describe the voice of God. And you could go to Psalm 29 and study, and you'll have a little bit more detail about those seven thunders. So if you're like just bored this week, read a little Psalm 29 for you, right? And so we hear this thundering from God. So, and it's not just the sound of thunders. It wasn't just a big, mighty, you know, thunderstorm, rainstorm that's happening in heaven. That's just how John is describing the voice of God. We even see that in the gospel sometimes, that when God spoke from heaven, others heard thundering and others heard actual words in the voice of God. And here, John hears something and he goes quick to write it down. He says, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. And so if one of you dirty rats texts me this week and says, what do you think was said? I'm gonna kick you straight, no. Like, we don't know. There's a mystery there that we're just gonna have to sit in the tension of, we don't know. What was said? It was something that John heard, that he at least saw value because he wanted to quickly and go to write this down. It's even like when I'm sitting under other Bible teachers and let it be in school or pastor's conferences, you hear something good and you go to write it down and you miss a couple things and thankfully we can go back and watch it online so we can fill in all the other details. And so John's hearing this, he goes to write it down and then that voice says, no, 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 stop. Seal that up. That's not for you to write down and, and pass along. That was something for you to hear and to seal up in your heart. And so we kind of, as, as good Bible students, we read that, and that's one of, the, that's one of those uh, moments where you just lay awake at night and you wonder, what did the seven thunders say? What was said right there in that moment? What did John hear? And I think, you know, think about John. It's like the last living apostle. He was the last one killed. You imagine being friends with, you know, 11 other dudes that follow Jesus and one by one, you're just getting the story. Oh yeah, they killed Peter. Oh, then they killed James. Oh, they stabbed Thomas. He's gone. And it's one by one, everybody that you walked with, with Christ are dying. <laughs> it's like, well, everybody else is getting killed for their faith in Jesus. I guess I know what's gonna happen to me. And I wonder too, like if he ever came off of the island of Patmos and, and tried to you know, integrate back into normal society, how could you? After you hear the full revelation of here and some things that he doesn't even tell us, like what did those seven thunders say to him? I wonder if he went to church that next Sunday. You know, he's over in the corner twitching, glowing. Like what's wrong with John? He's seen things that we haven't seen. He's heard things that we haven't heard. You know, in our apologetic class, one of the things we talked about for the defense of the resurrection is the apostles' lives, all of them, laid down their lives willingly and were martyred. Not one recanted of their faith. Why would they die for a lie? It's a really strong argument to understand. And not one recanted, right? Like, I, I have two good friends from high school, and they rolled over on me all the time but out of 12 guys, not one, and that's just the apostles, not even other disciples, because think, Stephen, the first one killed, wasn't even one of the 12, but he didn't recant his faith, but he stood boldly when he was being stoned and said that I see Christ at the right hand of God. 
And so John heard things and he saw things and we, and yes, we have a completed canon uh, of scripture, but in the same breath, I scratch my head and wonder what was said here? Will, will this ever be revealed to us? We don't know. And as we continue, you see this, this voice, this angel saying, and at the very end of verse six, and he swore by who lives forever, who created heaven, earth, and the sea, and everything that's in it, that there would be no more delay. Another way you could say it is there should be delay no longer. Because God's word is true. And his timing is perfect. And how he is pouring out his wrath. He hasn't done it too soon. And he's not delaying. What it's saying is that we, we have hit the point where nothing is going to stop this. There's nothing that's going to be able to intercede and keep God from carrying out his will, his wrath, his plan for the culmination of human history. There's going to be no more delay in this, meaning this, this is the final scene of this tribulation. There's going to be no more delay to it. And so think about that. I mean, how many times do we, even as followers of Jesus in the church, we're not living in the tribulation, it hasn't started yet. How do we know that? Because we're still on earth and we're not destined for wrath. First Thessalonians tells us that we're gonna be caught up with Christ in the air. Because if you go later, it tells us that we're gonna return with Christ. That's exciting to me, right? I would rather ride on a horse behind Jesus than to be standing in front of Jesus as he's coming in on a white horse. That doesn't sound that fun to me, right? Because a rider on a white horse, he was a warrior coming for war. That's why he rode in on a donkey on Palm Sunday, because he came for peace, and we understand the cross to bring us to peace with God. And so we're at this moment here looking at this delay, and, and, and we hear this angel saying there's gonna be no more delay, and even us in our faith, we can think God delays all the time. And we, we say in one breath, yes, God's timing is perfect, but then when the, you know, the street level rubber meets the road of our faith, we'd say, oh yeah, God's delaying all the time. And, and, we, and that heart, I mean, take it, carry it out. We don't trust God's timing because his timing's not our timing. We don't trust his ways because it's not our ways. We don't trust his thoughts because it's not our thoughts. The greatest reason to trust God's timing, thoughts, and his ways is that they're not our timing, our thoughts, and our ways. I mean, just take the timing aspect of it. Like if God beamed me up, Scotty, to heaven with him, and he said, you know what? I was gonna carry out my will and my order of events here, but I'll let you do it, right? Like I know me when somebody cuts me off on the highway, right? Hellfire and brimstone, smite them, Lord, right? I would want all the seals, the trumpets, the bowls, all of God's wrath in one big atomic bomb of supernatural spiritual wrath. And why? Because I had to hit the brake for two seconds. Because at times, you know, again, play it out. We think that we have a greater heart for truth and righteousness than God. Then at other times, we think we're more merciful than God. We think we're more loving than God. We think that we are more graceful than God. And we struggle with that because we look at him and we say, why are you waiting? And even in our own lives, like, infertility, I think, is one of the hardest things that us as humans have to deal with. When you hear the heart of a mother and a father, 
and all they want is children. And I am not naive to think that some of you have not walked a very similar path or you have someone in your family and you see a front row seat of that kind of pain. We even read that in the Old Testament where they yearned and longed for a child and they prayed earnestly time and time again and then that doubt creeps into our heart. Either does God not care about me? Does God not hear me? Why is God delaying in this? And we as followers of Jesus, a lot of times we can get set on the destination. So even think of other things. The new job, I can't wait until I get married. I can't wait until we move. I can't wait. And we put these, you know, kind of pillar moments in our life and we just want to rush to those. But we have to understand is that God he kind of enjoys the process more. But that's hard when we think about God's timing. Because we'll say in one breath, strength will rise as we wait upon the Lord. They even made it a song and it sounds great. We'll sing it, we'll raise our hands, we'll even close our eyes, we'll have a little moment about it. But the moment that it hits our real life, why do I have to wait, Lord? I struggled that even in ministry. I had a bunch of uh, let's call them friends just so we can be nice. No, had a bunch of friends that were youth pastors and one by one, they go off and they're taking over churches and leading churches and I had to sit there still as the youth pastor. There's this guy leading the church. There's a guy leading the church. I'm just thinking, Lord, how long are you gonna wait? Until he said, oh yeah, I have to, have to get Calvary ready for you because they're not ready, you know. <laughs> We had a little bit of seasoning there just to get ready for the bald guy. But I struggled with that. And my wife would say, you, you wouldn't want, that church wouldn't work out for you. And I know, I know you're right. I say it. And I would struggle with that. But, but why me, Lord? Yeah, I get it. You know, like you're going to delay. Your timing's perfect. But let your timing be perfect in other people's lives. But not my life. What it is is idolatry. Because we want what our heart wants. We don't want the things of God. And even if it is the same thing, if I want it in my timing, it's still idolatry. Because that's not the fullness that God wants. And so no matter how high, low, the valley, the mountain that you're in, that you're walking through and you're waiting upon the Lord on something, and no matter how painful it is, and I know the reality of what that could be. His timing is perfect. And this is why, you know, parts of Revelation are so important because if God's timing is perfect on those that has rejected him, if his timing is perfect on those that he's pouring his wrath out on, do we honestly believe the character of God to mishandle us? Is his timing not going to be perfect towards us who love him? and put our faith and our trust in him? Is he gonna handle the unrighteous in a better, more timely way than he's gonna handle those that see him and the life and our faith? I mean, is he really gonna mishandle us in that way? And so it serves as a reminder to us that if he will handle those that want nothing to do with them, what about those of us that continually to turn our eyes and our face to him, even in the midst of the pain, even in the midst of the hurting, even in the midst of the waiting, knowing there is no delay. 
And, and this is kind of a Calvary Chapel thing, and this is a part where all of us, like, let's just be honest, right? Like, there's parts of our family or aspects of our family that we don't like, right? Like, oh, I'm crazy Uncle Eddie, or I hate that my family does this, and, you know, we have those. There's, there's even parts of the Calvary Chapel family that I, I necessarily don't like. And, and we're not going to get into a big discussion of what those are, but one of them is you hear... And I know what they mean. Hey, we're gonna, we are so looking for the return of the Lord, but if he tarries, meaning if, if God delays, then we're gonna be faithful to serve him. And it irks me every time because God cannot delay. His timing is perfect. And so the moment that we are raptured, the moment that he returns, the moment that any of these events take place, it's perfect in his timing. It might feel like he's delaying, but it's perfect in him. And if we're gonna ever be sure of something, let's be sure of who God really is, not just how it feels to us. Because it might feel like a tearing, but in a sense, we are attacking the character of God to say that. And so this angel comes and he says, there is no more delay in it. God's word is true, his timing is perfect, and it's a means of comfort for us as saints. We love that, that we, as we operate into our world and the things that happen in it, even unto our own deaths, as we live, you know, surrender to him, even the moment that I'm gonna breathe my last breath, it's gonna be perfect within his timing. When I live surrendered unto him and I don't try to take any aspect of my life in my own hands and that's the, that's the battle, just like you know a, a three-year-old with a snack. Like you ever try to pry fruit snacks from a three-year-old, right? They will death grip that thing. You, you, they don't even care about the fruit snacks anymore. Like they're just squished jello in their hands, but we're not letting go, right? You gotta get the screwdriver out. No, no, don't do that. And are we the same way in our lives? that we death grip it and hold on to it. But if we live with open hands in every aspect of our life and we trust his timing, it's a comfort to us. Because again, the greatest thing is that his ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts and his timing even isn't our timing. So it's a comfort to us. But at the same time, what's the tension that we sit in as followers? The very thing that's a comfort to us is gonna be a judgment to those who do not have a relationship with him. And so that's where in one breath we wait patiently upon the Lord's return and we almost kind of have that, uh, today Lord, are we, uh, today, are we, are we ready to t today? But at the same time we ask the Lord, don't, because I, I know what that means for those that don't have a relationship with you. And this is that sweet and bitterness that we see in this scroll, this, this little book that the angel has. And again, it's the, the detailing, the mysteries of God, what it says in at the end of verse seven, that the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. Here's the crazy part. As God is working through human history, you know, he picked Israel all the way back um, with the Abrahamic covenant, like Genesis 12, God's plan to use a people and, and, and walks them through that. And there's some crazy things that happen. We'll talk about some of those. And then at one moment when he brings the Messiah, Christ, they reject him. And so he puts Israel on hold and he builds and starts his church. And that's where we're at right now. 
but he put Israel on hold. He has like two programs. God's big enough to have two programs, you know what I mean? And then once the church is raptured, he's gonna pick back up Israel. See, those that understand the Old Testament, he's picking back up Israel. You even see this. He's like, I've announced this to the servants, my, the prophets. There's a lot about the book of Revelation that we can go back into the Old Testament and see pointings. And here in a few chapters, like we're really gonna geek out. So the next time, I think, uh, here in a couple of weeks, we're gonna have the TV and we're gonna geek out and some of you that love that are gonna love it. But the church was always a mystery. Not mystical, it was a mystery. It was something, because, and again, us Bible interpreters, some of us want to try to run into the Old Testament and find references to the church, and it's not there. I mean, even the apostles, the disciples, when they ask Jesus, hey, when are these end times? When is this all going to happen? He, he reveals revelation to them, but he never said anything about the church. Jesus only mentions it a couple times. It's a mystery to it. And so when we see this mystery of God being fulfilled, he goes, I've announced it to your servants that we can go back and we can see in the Old Testament, like almost every major and minor prophet of God has, uh, as they were even prophetically speaking for near fulfillment, there's a far fulfillment of their prophecy that we find in Revelation. And so in a sense for us as good Bible students, it's like God wants us to know what these mysteries could be. And when we hear those words, we kind of wonder, well, what, what could that mystery be? And for me, I think one of the greatest questions we have to answer well as followers of Jesus is how, how can we have a loving, graceful, merciful God? A God that is all-knowing, so he knows how to defeat evil. We have a God that is all-powerful, so he can defeat evil. We have a God that's all-loving because he wants to defeat evil. Then the question that we have to answer, then why doesn't he? If that is your God, then why does evil exist? And the simplest way to answer it is a three-letter word, yet. You're right, we do have an all-powerful, all-loving, all-knowing God, but yet evil exists. Why is that? Because he hasn't done anything about it yet. That's why he tells John to continue to prophesy, talking about the events that will come. All the events are not shored up as some would want to read Revelation and think that it was all fulfilled in 70 AD. It's not. That we, even as the church, are waiting on future events of what God is doing. And there's no signs. There's nothing that we need to wait and see. We seek a Savior, Philippians said. And the next thing we're waiting on is rapture. And so we can look and understand that these mysteries and, and what's this mystery of God? How does this loving God allow such evil? He will take care of it. He just hasn't yet. And there's a reason for that. That he is, because again, who is more patient than the Lord? Who wants more righteousness than the Lord? But he's patiently enduring the evil, even in our world today. Why? Because at the same time, it's providing a moment of salvation for those that don't know him. And even in tribulation, he will, he will pour out his wrath in a very orchestrated way where he slowly increases the intensity. Why? Because he wants people to come to the Lord. It is a book of salvation. And so we know that God will handle all evil, that he will restore everything back. And so our greatest, when we think about the mysteries of God, it's honestly not the answers that we long for. We're not sitting here in a Bible class and, okay, now what's the answer to number three? Did you get number three? What? We've done that in class, maybe. <laughs> 
maybe missed an answer and we're looking over at our friend for it. It's not the answers that we long for in the mystery of God. When we talk about the mysteries of God, it's not an understanding intellectually, but what our heart and our soul longs for is restoration and completion. Even us, as we look at the broken world around us, regardless of your faith in Jesus or not, and I'm gonna be the naive pastor to think that we're all believers, right? We all go home and read our Bibles for 29 hours a day. We pray like a grandma with a lost grandson. <laughs> That's my grandma. You know, I'm gonna believe that we're all serving Jesus in every moment of our life. But even, even those without any understanding of God, look at the world around us, and their heart and their soul longs for restoration and completion. You know, one of, my, one of my dream cars, if you're taking note and you wanna write this down, I would love to have a 64 Impala. Okay, thanks for the offer, all right, here we go. No, <laughs> I've told my wife, I was like I, I want, like, I want a long boat of a car, you know what I mean? Like just one of those that you just like sail through, like I want a long big old car. 64 Impala I think would just be the coolest ever. And, and I, I've used this analogy in other areas, and it's like would I want that car fresh off the line, brand new? I don't think I would. You know, uh, anybody mushroom hunt in here? Morel mushrooms, not the mushrooms where you eat and you're dropping acid, not that, right? <laughs> That's illegal. I'm talking about the mushrooms that <laughs> grandma used to fry up with some eggs, okay? Well, we would, we'd be tromping through, you know, the backwoods of Kansas. My grandparents had a bunch of acres and, and, and we knew all the neighbors and like we hadn't seen a road for like 10 square miles and all of a sudden here's this old rust bucket of a car or a truck and it's like, how in the world did that, who just drug a car out in the middle of nowhere and just let it rust? But the thought would be like, how cool would it be to take that same car and bring it back to a shop and bring it back to its original condition? Which technically it wouldn't be its original condition because a car coming off the line has never been rusted. And you think about what God is doing. The whole, the whole Bible isn't about our salvation. We are not the center focus of scripture. From the very beginning to the very end, it's about God restoring what he originally created. Now, yeah, we kind of, we, we played a small part, you know, that whole sin entered the world and death entered the world through sin type of thing. And, and we ripped apart in our free will choosing to rebel against God. his space, our space, we rip that apart. And the whole story is God bringing that back together. And so to take that like old rust bucket of a car and then you, and you restore it back, that's what he's doing. Now not having a, a garden of Eden, you know, we're not gonna go back to the garden and run around naked, that's, that's scary almost in a sense, right? Best thing of Revelation, we're clothed in white robes, right? Can I get an amen in that, right? Uh, looking at each other, I don't wanna see you naked in heaven. No, I'm be clothed in white robes, baby, right? But we're gonna be in a new Jerusalem, this garden-like city-state. Our heart and our soul, even regardless of our faith, we long for restoration and completion. The beautiful part is as followers of Jesus, we understand there's new heavens, there's new earth, there's new Jerusalem, there's no loss, there's no pain, there's no suffering. 
I think that's one of the greatest ways to share your faith is not, it's going to sound bad, don't run straight to Jesus. I point out brokenness. Because if you run straight to Jesus, so many people are like, oh yeah, I don't believe in Jesus. But I haven't found a person that lives on this earth that says, oh yeah, we live in a perfect world. That every person recognizes brokenness. But if we can talk about brokenness and it implies something whole, well, how do we get back to perfection? Then we bring up Jesus. Then we talk about how he is restoring all things. And we, and we wonder, you know, we hear this like, why a delay then? If, if, if God's about this, like, why is God not the greatest being? Could he not just take that 64 and Paul throw it right in the shop and boom, it's restored? Why is he waiting? Why is there a delay? Well, yes, we've talked about that, that salvation is being made possible, that if he would do it all in one singular moment right now, that that would mean those without a faith in Christ, we know what their end would be, eternally separated from God, which the New Testament can only describe as weeping and gnashing of teeth and eternal fire. So you take that literal, or if you take that figurative, both scare the snot out of me, literally and figuratively, right? And so we, we look at that and we, and we think, uh, looking for this restoration and, and why is God waiting and why is there a delay to it? Why doesn't he just restore all things? Yes, salvation is made possible, but at the same time, he is allowing the world to ripen for judgment. Think of like a really good farmer. You know, he's got his crops out there. You don't want to harvest too soon. It's worthless. You don't want to harvest too late. It's worthless. Right? I mean, there is nothing better than like a really ripe pineapple. It's like perfect, perfectly ripe. There is, n- there is no better fruit. I think that was actually the fruit in the garden right there. Because like, I don't crave apples, but you got like a ripe pineapple, let's go. But in the same breath, God is waiting until judgment is perfectly ripe so that it wouldn't be an attack of his character of, oh, he went too soon or he let the evil too much. No, again, his timing is perfect, not just in the salvation, but also in how he's executing his judgment. Because again, he already paid. He already paid the penalty of sin at the cross. So the only thing left is to execute judgment because salvation has always been available. But his judgment will come. And, and we see this weird kind of thing here, right? This angel, and you hear a voice from heaven talking to John, and it says, go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and the land. So I went and I take it, and he says, take and eat it. And so we talk about us intaking the word of God. What I don't mean by that is start ripping pages and making a sandwich out of that, right? Like, so like, don't be chewing on the gospel of John. That's not what we're talking about. Not literally. Figuratively, yes. Literally, no. So if you're eating paper, that's, that's pica. That's a mental disorder right there. So don't do that. And so like, what's going on here? So if you go back to those Old Testament prophets, there were times that God would have them do some really weird things to communicate to Israel. Uh, he told one prophet, he goes, hey, you need to eat food and your only source of heat to cook that food is flaming human dung. Oh, oh, I got I to cook my food over and use poo as the, you know, I can't use a gas stove, I can't, you know, start a nice campfire, nope, you got to use poo. I'm like, okay, I don't want to do that. And he tells one prophet, hey, how about you just run around naked a bunch? <laughs> We're like, nope, I'm not doing that one, right? And he tells one prophet, 
hey, I want you to get married. He'd be like, yes, I get to get married. That's going to be a great thing. Yeah, you need to marry the prostitute. <laughs> like, Lord, really? He goes, yeah, I want you to marry the prostitute. Why? What was he communicating? Israel, you're the adulterous wife that leaves me. And so he used real life situations and, and the lives of the prophets to communicate to his people, Israel. And in the same breath, he tells them to take and eat this scroll. And it's, it's sweet in his mouth, but he says it's bitter in his stomach. And so w- w- what's the understanding? What does he want us to know? Because the sweetness that we understand, yeah, Jesus is coming and we are excited about that. But the tension that it is bitter. Why? Because we know the events that must take place for that to happen. That's why in one breath we, we long and we almost want to hurry the return of the Lord. But then at the same time, Lord, wait and be patient. Why? Because I have family and friends that do not have a relationship with you. And we need to sit in that tension. And so John has commanded to take and eat and then prophesy it out. He needs to speak it out. And think of that for us. We do not merely just echo the gospel without first ingesting it ourselves. To be the most effective for ministry in the hands of God is first to make sure that I've ingested fully the full counsel of God. And so we're not talking about just a a shallow overview of scripture, but to ingest whole part. We need to sit at the table of God and just buffet the word of God. We need the full story of redemption and we need to go deep into it where it's not just about the mercy of God, but also the warnings of God. It's not just about the promises of God, but the prophecy of the events that are to come that we need both the sweet and the bitter. Because here's the issue. If it's only the sweetness, it's worth very little. And just gonna call it, the American church loves just to pour honey all over each other. But we never talk about the bitter things of it. That we only wanna see Christ and his grace and his love and his mercy. But we never wanna talk about truth, holiness, righteousness, obedience. There's never a word of repentance and we're attacking the gospel to do so. To only give the sweet part of it and not the bitter, we're attacking the gospel, we're attacking the character of God. And it's worth very little if we only have the sweetness. So for every one of us as a follower of Jesus, we should experience that same bitterness in our stomach that John is feeling, knowing that this is going to happen and what is going to happen for those that do not have a relationship with them. This bitterness needs to grow in us a burden for the lost where it's not just an intellectual understanding of the events and we could draw a nice little timeline and pass our New Testament class, but we need to have a burden for those that do not have a relationship with Christ. Why? Because we know what is to come. But what's the sweetness? There's a way of escape. And his name is Jesus. And so we, as true students of prophecy, we will not simply stop at the knowledge of the things to come, but this knowledge to create in us a strong burden, to share the grace, the love, the mercy, and the truth of God, the righteousness of God, an obedience to God in his word. And so what is the call for us as the church that we're, yeah, we're not gonna live through this. Do you have a burden for the lost? 
And we say that, but let's put real names to it. Think of that person in your family. Think of that neighbor. Think of that friend, coworker that you know thinks that you're crazier than all get out because you have put your faith and your trust in Christ. Does their view of them burden you more than your understanding of what their future awaits? Do you love them enough to overcome the negative view of you from them to say, I get that you think I'm crazy, but I can't keep, not just from sharing the sweet honey of God, but also the bitterness, the truth of what it means to walk in a rejection of Christ. And that's hard. But look at Jesus' life. He did the exact same thing. But the, the faith that we want in the churches so much is the, I just want to come into the building just as I am. And I want to leave just as I was. And I don't want any transformation. And we isolate and insulate ourselves from the faith community that God has called us to live together. And we don't want, even as the life group video Mark and Lisa were talking about, we don't want that accountability because it's usually not in the form of the sweetness of it. We don't want somebody pointing out our sin, our failure. But is that not the most loving thing somebody could do for us? Is to hold fast to the guardrails that are given to us in scripture and encourage us to continue to pursue Christ, not just in the sweet parts, but also in the bitter. And so yes, I want people to come to the Lord because of the hope and the grace and the mercy that I have found in Christ. The identity and the purpose of my life, all wonderful, beautiful, good things. But I also want people to come to Christ because I know what it means, not just that side of glory. There's a whole lot of bitterness. But even this side of glory, understanding who I was without him and the and the lost feeling, the empty heart and soul that I carried around. Do we have a burden to see people, and this is their greatest need. This is is their greatest need, is our need for Christ in our life. Do we have a burden for that? And I'm gonna pray for you, and I'm just gonna tell you right now, I'm praying that the Holy Spirit puts a burden on you for that lost person in your life. And I hope you have a miserable week trying to ignore the voice of God because you want to hold fast to the sweetness and not the bitterness. I hope there's a holy uh, refluxing heartburn in you because you understand the bitterness of what this means. But thank the Lord that we get to bring the sweetness of who Christ is on the cross and we get to be Again, his hands, his feet, his heart to a lost, broken world. Pray with me. Father, we love you. And in a moment of just reverence and and a seriousness of our faith in you, Lord, don't shy away from us, but give us a fullness to the understanding, not just of the the sweet parts of your grace,
but also that which would be bitter in our stomachs, knowing what your return will bring and knowing the true spiritual state of those around us and what their eternity awaits. And so, Lord, I ask that your Holy Spirit would pour out on us, again, a burden for those that do not have a relationship with you. And Lord, if you see so fit to use us to bring the full truth of your gospel in their lives, I pray that first it would be intake into us, that we would make sure of our own salvation. And then from that well of living water that we would pour out into others around us. And so, Lord, if there is any uh, unworthy way in me, if there is anything in me that you need to address, Lord, I pray that you would bring uh, a grace community around me with accountability to, to call that out. And I'm asking for the same thing of this church body. I pray this morning would be a day of repentance and realigning to your truth. But it would also be a, a call to mission. Not across seas, not across streets, but who are the people that we need to have a burden for the, that are lost and separated from you, Lord? Put that person on our mind and our hearts, and I pray that we cannot ignore or shake that thoughts. And we sit in the tension between the sweet and the bitter of what your gospel and what your will and what your word means, Lord. And I pray that in unity we would have a courage and a boldness that we would respond in faith and we would respond into obedience to what you are calling from us that it, let it be the actions of our lives and the words of our mouth that we would preach the gospel at all times. Give us that kind of faith, Lord, that we would share this greatest gift that we have in you, knowing that you are the way of escape, that every one of us that you have touched have moved us from being children of wrath to children of yours. And so, Lord, we know that you are a good father and you only want more people to put their faith and their trust in you. And so use us that we would be instruments of your grace, mercy, love, instruments of your righteousness and your truth in the lives of those around us. Give us that kind of faith, Lord. We pray this in the name of Jesus. And everybody said...